This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. Job numbers rose last month, but so did unemployment. It's a mixed bag of a jobs report less than a week from the elections. It's a high-stakes midterm season, and last week's attack on the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has cast a pall over the proceedings. The assault has already become mired in conspiracy theories spread by several prominent figures, including the new head of Twitter. And that's where we start today as a massive round of layoffs prompts a class action lawsuit. Alex Heath is deputy editor at The Verge, and he joins us now. Alex, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So on Thursday, a group of former Twitter employees sued the company for violating California workplace law, and that's because new owner Elon Musk plans to eliminate half of Twitter's workforce and has apparently already started cutting jobs. What do we know about his plans to clear house and the implications of this lawsuit? Yeah, the lawsuit was filed uh, shortly after an unsigned memo was sent inside Twitter, the first real communication employees have received since Musk took the company over a week ago, saying that the company is going to go through a global reduction in its workforce. And while the memo didn't say the scope of the cuts, I'm hearing it's roughly half of Twitter's workforce. They have about 7,500 employees And uh, employees immediately started getting logged out of their internal systems, their work emails, uh, even before they had received an email telling them whether they were going to stay at the company or not. And as of this morning, uh, many people have already received that notice. And you're right, several employees filed a lawsuit uh, claiming that Twitter violated California's Warren Act, which requires employers to notify uh, employees of, of mass layoffs 60 days before. I am hearing that some of these, uh, it's hard, you know, because you're operating in a bit of an information vacuum. Twitter isn't sharing this stuff with the press, but, uh, you know, based on employees I've talked to who have gotten these notices, uh, they will be kept on the payroll for at least two months. So this may be how Musk is trying to get out of a potential Warren Act violation. But it's really unclear. Things are moving very quickly, as usually happens with Musk. Right. Another big change Musk has floated is attaching a price tag to the blue check that indicates a user is verified. So for people who don't use Twitter, what exactly is verification? What does that blue check mark mean? Sure. Verification on Twitter gives you a check mark by your name. Um, and it was originally intended to signal that you are who you say you are. So it's actually Musk kind of returning it back to what it originally was supposed to be. It instead became this thing that you needed to know someone at Twitter to get, uh, whether you were a celebrity, a politician, or a journalist. Musk sees it as a way to just say, uh, I have linked a credit card to this account. Uh, I have verified that I'm a human being and not a bot. Um, Musk leading into this deal made it very clear that he thinks Twitter has a bot problem, uh, that there's too much spam on the site. And he sees this new paid verification, which is going to start rolling out next week, $8 a month as a way to combat that. And anyone who currently has a blue check mark will need to pay uh, within 90 days or lose their check mark. How would monetizing it effectively cut back on the number of people who, well, the number of, of users on the site who aren't real people? The idea is that linking a credit card to an account is uh, a way to 
have an account go through an additional layer of verification that it's at least not uh, you know someone operating a bot farm, right? Which is actually a problem Twitter has. And what's going to happen is the experience on Twitter is going to quickly bifurcate between whether you're verified or not. Um, Musk has said that people who are verified will get preference in Twitter's algorithms, so they'll be seen by more people, they'll be seen higher in replies, they'll have a cleaner notification experience, they'll get to filter out non-verified. So you're really going to see a have-and-haves-not situation here where if you're verified, uh, you see a lot of verified accounts, and if you're not, um, you are not seen by the verified accounts as much. Well, and there's been some back and forth about whether he's going to charge $8 or 20 bucks a month. Has he landed on a price tag? Uh, I have quickly realized with this week of Musk owning Twitter that anything can change on a dime. I think the team building this feature found out that it was going to be $8 instead of $20 from Musk's tweet. So they're all kind of looking to his Twitter account to determine what their next steps are. He's had employees uh, sleeping in the office working 12-plus-hour shifts uh, to build this feature and has, told the tim- the, and has told the team building it that if they don't ship it on time next week, they'll all be fired. And keep in mind, this is as half of their colleagues uh, are being laid off as we speak. What do you think this means for the company as a whole? Do you think people are going to leave the site? Um, It's a good question. I've seen some analysis that roughly a million accounts have been deactivated since Musk took over. Um, I think it's too early to say, frankly. I I will say this is the most dramatic cultural reset of a company that I've ever witnessed. I mean, Twitter was the opposite of how Musk runs his companies leading into this. Um, And he's really signaled that he's going to get rid of a lot of the perks and benefits like a monthly day of rest and uh, a work from anywhere policy and all these things that Twitter has touted to employees. And, you know, you know, you can hold two things to be true. I think it's fair that Twitter has not moved as quickly as some of its other peers in social media. The company has kind of languished for the last decade relative to Facebook and others in terms of the innovation there. And it's also a fairly bloated company. There are, um, probably more employees than they need. You know, Twitter before Musk bought it was going to already lay off about a fourth of the company. So they were already planning to to reduce the headcount. Obviously, he's doing that more. So I think it's true that, you know, he recognizes bloat at the company and, and wants to get rid of it. He also has to do this because this is the largest leveraged buyout of a company uh, by a single person ever. And he has $1 billion a year in interest payments on the debt alone. Twitter barely makes that in revenue. So he's got to make cuts to be able to pay back his debtors. So I think there's a bit of a, his, you know, his hand is forced there as well. Let's bring in a couple of more voices. Wendy Benjaminson is a deputy managing editor for the U.S. government at Bloomberg News. Wendy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jim. And Jeff Mason is with us. He's Reuters White House correspondent. Jeff, always great to have you. Great to be with you. Now, Elon Musk has called himself a free speech absolutist, but this week he indicated it'd be at least a few weeks before any banned users return to the platform, and that includes former President Donald Trump. So, Jeff, this means Trump won't be on the platform for Election Day. But how much of a struggle has it been for him to reach people since getting kicked off other social media sites? Well, he's found other ways to reach people. He has his own uh, social media site now, Truth Social, and the former president has even indicated that if he were given the opportunity to come back onto Twitter, that he would not, uh, because he wouldn't want to draw people away from Truth Social That said, um, I think all of us who covered him for the four years that he was president and uh, and others clearly who have 
followed him all these years know how much he likes to have a big audience, and he had millions of followers, m- many more than he has on his current uh, site. So I, I suspect if Mr. Musk did uh, make it possible for him to return, that it would be hard for the former president to say no. Wendy, if Trump and other figures known for spreading myths and disinformation are allowed back, what concerns does that raise for you around the pro- proliferation of conspiracy theories and, and disinformation? Well, I, I think there will be much more uh, conspiracy theories and misinformation, and that's always a problem for our democracy. Um, I would hope that if he is a free speech absolutist, he lets people uh, call out what our conspiracy theories are not. He certainly didn't help that after Paul Pelosi was attacked with a hammer in his home. Someone tweeted a wild conspiracy theory that's not fact-based at all, and he tweeted, you know, in his sort of... Um, I don't know, in his sort of way, uh, well, there's certainly more to the story here than meets the eye. That legitimizes a conspiracy theory, and that's the biggest concern with Musk taking over, is him his, him using his influence to legitimize these ideas. I mean, Alex, what does it say that the new owner of this platform himself is spreading misinformation? I would just say this isn't a new thing, right? Musk has tweeted things that um, are really cringe or kind of stoke a conspiracy theory and deleted it before. He's a guy who kind of shoots from the hip. He's talked about how Twitter is his stream of consciousness. He doesn't really think before he tweets. Uh, He obviously was sued over tweeting saying that he was going to take Tesla private and he didn't do it. Um, So he's he's shown in the past that he really doesn't care, frankly. So I I, I think we're going to just see more of that now that he's the self-described chief twit. Well, Twitter's own employees warn that the trolls are currently testing the platform's limits with a surge of racist slurs, um, anti-Semitic memes, a lot of hate-filled language. So, Alex, what does all this mean for the future of the platform? Um, I mean, the platform's going to be tested. Can Musk fire half the company, keep it running, going into a, a very important election and do it in a safe way and in a way that kind of protects the integrity of the service. Um, He's obviously said to advertisers he doesn't want Twitter to become a, quote, hellscape, that he wants it to be the best advertising platform in the world. That suggests he thinks that moderation is important because advertisers we know do not want to be next to, you know, content that is hateful or racist, et cetera. So uh, he has incentive to make the platform a clean place because he needs to make money. He can't afford for this to be a vanity project that doesn't make money. So that is the only hope I see uh, in terms of his incentives for keeping it a a safe place. Well, it's important to note that some advertisers have paused on their advertising on the site while they're watching this all play out. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. You're listening to the News Roundup. Alex, I was hoping you could clarify something for us. According to some New York Times reporting, getting the checkmark will not require a verification of your ID. So, yes, a credit card will be attached, but they won't check your actual government identification to make sure you are who you say you are. Can you clarify that for us? That's that's correct. And what that essentially means is that there will be people trying to impersonate others as verified people. I'm not sure Twitter has thought, thought through that from a trust and safety uh, and impersonation view there. And I, I think that will 
be a problem. I want to be clear. I do think a lot of people will be incentivized, though, to be verified because of the algorithmic boosting that will happen if you're verified. If you create a lot of content on Twitter and you care about people seeing it, all of a sudden your reach is kind of artificially uh, restricted relative to others. It will be very tough to stay unverified. So it, it affects a certain kind of account, but not but not everyone. Now, a disturbing trend has emerged ahead of the election, a rise in threats against politicians. There are more than 9,600 threats against members of Congress last year, and that's a nearly tenfold increase from 2016, according to a report from Time. Last Friday, as we said, Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, was attacked in their San Francisco home. He suffered a fractured skull when his attacker hit him with a hammer. Pelosi underwent surgery and was released from the hospital yesterday. Wendy, what more do we know about the attack itself? Well, we know that this man was um, one of those people who is just angry. You know, in the old days, he would have had cardboard signs on the sides of his panel van and, you know, and a megaphone and driven around Washington yelling at people. Now he doesn't do that. He he watches right-wing social media. He watches um, these conspiracy theories in QAnon, and he worked himself into a frenzy, apparently, and wanted to, and I, I cannot make light of, the, I mean, enough, uh, make this point strongly enough, wanted to assassinate the Speaker of the House of the United States. I mean, it's it's a big deal. And he went in looking for Nancy, sort of held her 82-year-old husband hostage, thinking he he was saying, where's Nancy, thinking Mrs. Pelosi would be there. And then, you know, ultimately um, gave Paul Pelosi a skull fracture. He is being charged with kidnapping and attempted homicide. And it turns out he's an illegal immigrant from Canada. So after he serves his time, he will likely be deported. But he is sort of the face of this, um, of what happens with this uh, overly sharp rhetoric we're hearing and the things that might have you know, that some politicians think is funny to show themselves in a shooting range and talking about firing Pelosi, unstable people take that as a sign to commit violence. And that's what's causing the spike, I think. Well, a slew of conspiracy theories about the attack have spread in right-wing news outlets and on social media, as we said earlier. Uh, Elon Musk tweeted out one conspiracy theory, and former President Donald Trump shared that same theory to his millions of followers. San Francisco Police Chief William Scott strongly condemned the attack on Friday. This was intentional. And it's wrong. Our elected officials are here to do the business of their cities, their counties, their states, and this nation. Their families don't sign up for this to be harmed. And it is wrong. And everybody should be disgusted about what happened this morning. That was San Francisco Police Chief William Scott speaking on Friday. On Monday, Scott said these conspiracy theories are, quote, damaging to the people involved and damaging to this investigation, unquote. You know, Jeff, when we talk about the proliferation of disinformation and misinformation, I I want us to be careful because I don't think it's just about how people who may be unstable are responding to it. These things are gaining traction in our democracy across a broad swath of Americans, people who are voting, people who are voting for people who are also proliferating disinformation, still talking about an election being stolen. What are you thinking about heading into the midterms around that issue specifically? Well, I think you're spot on, Jen, to say that it has proliferated in in a massive way. It is not new this year. It's been proliferating like this and increasing over the last several years. Uh, It's something that I I 
remember being bothered in particular when President Trump would use that term fake news, because in addition to the, the use of that term to discredit um, actual and real journalists and journalism, it also distracted from the fact that there are things out there that are false and, and misinformation. And this is exhibit A of that. I think it's concerning. I think it's concerning to public officials. I think it's concerning to people uh, within the media. And I think you're also exactly right to say that it is impacting or having an impact on how people vote because there's not an, an ability for some consumers of news um, and news in this case, I'll put in quotation marks, to differentiate between sources and to differentiate between what are actual facts and what are not. And it is leading not only to uh, decisions, political decisions and decisions on voting, but it is clearly leading to violence. Alex, when we look at social media and the internet, what efforts have there been to combat disinformation, specifically around this attack, but also more broadly around the election? Um, honestly, there hasn't been much. I think we saw a lot of uh, activity in the last election when the platforms, especially Facebook, were under scrutiny. And a lot of that scrutiny has shifted, especially uh, you know in the TikTok age. I would say now we're talking more about you know, the, the Chinese ownership of TikTok than we are how Facebook or Twitter or, you know, American-based social media companies are combat combating this stuff. Um, I would say we haven't made a lot of meaningful progress, honestly. I wish I could give you a better answer than that, but um, I, I don't see a lot going on. And, and why? I come back to this question over and over again. You know, we're looking to social media companies really to, to self-police, to self-regulate. Why hasn't there been more movement in Congress? It's hard. We have this thing called the First Amendment in the United States, and a lot of these uh, speech regulations that get proposed, they run in directly into that. And it's, it turns out it's very hard to tell private companies how to regulate speech. And I think it should be. I don't think we should be uh, hastily trying to change that. Uh, that said, you know, people do want to change certain regulations around, you know, how the company is liable for the things that people say on its service. But it's just, it's tricky when you have the First Amendment. I mean, that really is what it comes down to. So what does that leave us with, uh, <laughs> everyday Americans who are trying to either sort through mis- and disinformation or actively combat it? The thing I think we could probably do as a as a society in the short term is focus on things like media literacy, right? Like make sure people understand where the sources of their news are coming from and how uh, verified they are. Uh, and then also put pressure on the companies with, you know, your activity, where you choose to spend your time. Um, you know, if you don't like the way a platform is run, don't use it. You know, this is capitalism at the end of the day that we're operating under and you can vote with your wallet, so to speak. Uh, that's really all we have until the government decides to step in here. Well, the attack on Paul Pelosi is part of a growing problem of political violence. U.S. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger has called for more resources to protect Congress members in the lead up to the midterms. Jeff, just Give us some, some grounding here. How have threats against lawmakers increased over the past two years? Well, we've seen uh, the example that we're talking about with regard to Speaker Pelosi's husband. Uh, we've seen, we saw the, sh the shooting uh, a, a few years ago on a baseball field with members of Congress. Uh, we've seen, of course, the, the horrific shooting of a former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords uh, several years ago. So unfortunately, Jen, there are multiple examples. And that uh, it's striking t to me, and I think probably to a lot of people, to hear someone like 
uh, Capitol Police Chief Tom uh, Manger saying that they need more funds, that, that that's not something that they've been looking at or requesting before. Uh, so it, it's, this, this, is, this is now not just theory, it's reality. Now, Wendy, the attack on Paul Pelosi was caught on tape by Capitol Police cameras, but officers didn't see it until local police arrived at the Pelosi home. Why didn't they see the attack when it was happening? Well, from what we understand from Chief Manger, as Jeff mentioned, um, they were watched, they had 1,800 views going at the same time, and probably not 1,800 officers staring at them. So, you know, someone, in a very human way, wasn't looking at the Paul Pelosi camera at that, or the Pelosi home camera at that moment. And by the time they turned back, there were police on the scene and then they were engaged. But because of these threats, they have so much more to do. And they are in a heightened state right before the midterms, thinking about the January 6th riot. It's a difficult time for them. Well, the man accused of attacking Pelosi had a list of other targets. They included a local professor and several state and federal politicians. President Biden decried the threats of political violence and voter intimidation during a speech in the Capitol on Wednesday. We don't settle our differences in America with a riot a mob, or a bullet, or a hammer. We settle them peaceably at the battle at the battle box, the ballot box. We have to be honest with ourselves, though. We have to face this problem. We can't turn away from it. We can't pretend it's just going to solve itself. There's an alarming rise in the number of our people in this country condoning political violence or simply remaining silence. Well, one of you tweeted this. If Musk allows Trump back on Twitter, I'm deleting it, period. Enough masters of misinformation and conspiracies ruining our country in the name of free speech. Musk is part of that if he condones it. Words and truth still matter. Now, Alex, President Biden speaking out about all this is is well and good. But as long as conspiracy theorists have access to massive online platforms, what power does the White House really do to, really have to combat these threats? Uh, I would come back to my earlier comment about the First Amendment. They really don't have much. Uh, there's there's really no power that these that these regulators have at the moment, except to be able to call these CEO you know these CEOs in for hearings to kind of put pressure on them. Uh, and the press obviously has its role to play as well in terms of scrutinizing these platforms. I don't think you know Elon's Twitter is going to be receiving uh, less scrutiny than Twitter was before Musk. I think it'll be receiving more. So honestly, that's what we have in the short term. We don't, uh, you know, barring any updates to the Constitution, I don't, I don't see how that changes. That's Alex Heath. He's deputy editor at The Verge. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Jeff, I I mentioned the president's speech there on Wednesday. Any other big takeaways from that speech? Well, a couple of things. Number one, White House officials have said this was a speech that he'd been planning for a few weeks and was not given directly in reaction to the attack on Paul Pelosi. But he started off his remarks talking about Mr. Pelosi and with good reason. That was um, a jumping off point for a broader message that he wanted to deliver, uh, which was uh, about the threats to democracy. Uh, the, the speech was given uh, near Capitol Hill at Union Station. Um, he he went, really went over a, several of the, the points that he has made before about threats to democracy. He mentioned his predecessor, uh, former President Trump, and uh, talked about everything being on, at stake and, and on the ballot uh, in the midterm elections next week. I think the broader question is, does a speech like that right now help 
politically. Mm. Uh, it certainly comes from his heart, and it certainly raises really, really important issues. But it may not move the needle uh, in terms of how voters vote next Tuesday. Well, election deniers dressed in camouflage and tactical gear have been camping out near ballot boxes in Arizona, and that's alarmed some, like this anonymous voter who spoke to the Phoenix CBS affiliate. I should be able to drop off my ballot without worrying about someone recording, what kind of personal information they may get, if they may think I did something illegal when I'm just dropping off my ballot. Now, Wendy, complaints have been made and a federal judge issued a temporary restraining order. Just what's happening here? Well, and let me add, Jen, that not only camouflage and tactical gear, they were armed with handguns. And it reminds me of things that happened in the Deep South in the pre-civil rights era when Klan members would stand in their hoods outside a polling place. They were just standing there, just like one judge said in Arizona, these people are just sitting there. But they're intent is clearly to scare voters. Like this woman said, are they recording her license plate? Are they watching her? Are they going to follow her home? This is um, these. It's funny because if these people are reading the polls, Republicans are winning. So why make it work harder to vote? The logic seems to escape, mm-hmm. escape Jeff, me there. Jeff, who exactly are these ballot box watchers? Do we know? Well, there, there, there are some specific groups, um, the right-leaning groups that, uh, that Wendy was referring to. I'm just can't remember the names right in front of me right this minute, but they, they, are, they are groups that are indeed, I think, maybe not saying that they're trying to intimidate, but are responding to concerns, quote-unquote concerns, uh, in this case, about election integrity and, and, and coming out uh, in that way. We got this email from James who says the Arizona gubernatorial race is discouraging. Carrie Lake, an election denier, will likely win. She's the GOP candidate there. The Democratic candidate made a fatal error in avoiding a public debate. And Becky tweets, how do I feel about the election? More than a little anxious that election deniers will be in power in Michigan. And Jeremy says, I live in Texas and vote blue. I know that there's little chance that we're going to turn the state blue. We always hear that there's going to be a blue wave in Texas, but it never happens. Sometimes it's just soul crushing. I don't really want to ask you to to speculate on the outcome of the midterms, but I, I do want to give a gut check on how long it may take to have election results. Wendy, it's it's not going to be Tuesday night. I really seriously doubt that the um, Senate race in Georgia between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker will almost certainly go to a runoff in December. In Pennsylvania, they cannot even start counting the early day early vote until 7 a.m. on Election Day. So then they have to count those and the votes that come in on Election Day and the mail-in ballots, et cetera. And, it, and given the tightness of these Senate races, they're all within a few points of each other. It could really take a few days before we know who controls Congress. Jeff, briefly, anything to add? Just that that is sort of the new reality right now in the U.S. in terms of Election Day. I think we're all used to and wanting to know the results uh, on the day of. But as we've seen uh, in the last election and we'll see in this one, it's just going to take a little longer. We'll be back with more after the break. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's turn to the Supreme Court and oral arguments in a case that could end affirmative action in college admissions. On Monday, the court heard arguments about whether race-conscious admissions programs at the University of North Carolina and Harvard are unlawful. It is simply not the case that every every black applicant gets a, quote, tip. In fact, I'll direct the court's attention to page 1,000. 
811 of the joint appendix, which includes this beautiful chart, which represents an undisputed model of the relative importance of race on application outcomes. And the one that you cannot actually even see to your far right is race. Race explains. I can't see it because it's far away. It, I, I mean, nonetheless, you have it to is not reference. zero. It is very close to zero. That is the testimony in the case. Well, was, so there's only a little racial discrimination. In it. That was Seth Waxman, the attorney for Harvard, defending their admissions policies during questioning with Justices John Roberts and Samuel Alito on Monday. Now, this week, we talked about the future of affirmative action and spoke with a former Dartmouth admissions officer, Aisha White. And here's what she said about the factors they considered in the admissions process. So what you're looking at first is what the applicant is bringing to the table. I have excelled in X, Y, and Z. Right. And so once you see that a person from a socioeconomically disadvantaged community has excelled as much as they can, they are the valedictorian of their class. They are in national honor society. They have done all these things, but they have not done the above and beyond. You're looking more at that application to see why haven't they done that. And the reason is, is because they haven't had access to it. And you know that based on where they live, their zip code and their race. That's how race is taken into consideration. If you want to hear that conversation where we went more deeply into the oral, oral arguments and the history of affirmative action, you can find it at the 1A.org. Jeff, how could the Supreme Court case change how or if race is considered by admissions officers? Well, it looks like it's, number one, Jen, it looks like they are going to change that based on the reaction from the, the six um, conservative justices who control the court. And it could change, I mean, it could change everything in terms of a, a, a a program or, a, or a, having the, the ability to um, consider race as one factor, um, as I think your, the previous uh, interview you just played uh, suggested, in, in admissions. The, the purpose of this for, for years and years has been to help um, boost diversity and um, to create, as some of the liberal justices uh, argued, a, a, a stronger workforce of uh, lawyers and doctors and and, and other trades um, by by educating more people and and creating uh, more diversity, but that's um, an argument that did not uh, sway the conservative justices. So I think. To your question, I think it will have a big impact. Well, Wendy, this is another case where the justices are upending precedent. So what what pattern are you starting to see when it comes to the Supreme Court? Well, we are starting to see there was a, a tremendous shift in the focus of the Supreme Court um, with the three justices appointed by Donald Trump. And they are looking at rulings from 50 years ago, from 20 years ago, from 40 years ago, and as you said, upending them. You know, it looks like in the nine states where affirmative action has already been banned in college admissions, the number of non-white applicants has plummeted. So, we already know what the effect will be if they rule against affirmative action. And obviously, there are other things that universities could change to help that, like legacy admissions, getting in because your mother or father went there, probably more your father. But, you know, getting in because of that 
let's say, could George W. Bush have made it through Yale without a legacy admission? Who knows? Well, our Dartmouth, uh, former Dartmouth admissions officer talked about the, the carve-out for legacy students. That was part of their admissions process as well. So it'll be interesting to see if questions come up around that uh, for colleges and universities across the country. One of the Supreme Court justices was in the news for a very different reason this week. Emails from the legal team of former President Donald Trump reveal they viewed Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas as, quote, key. Now, these emails were between members of Trump's legal team. Is Justice Clarence Thomas in any way implicated here, or was this just wishful thinking on the part of Trump's lawyers? Well, it's, I, I, it, to me, I mean, I'm not a lawyer and don't want don't to weigh in necessarily on whether he was implicated, but I think the, the emails show that they were just targeting him. And the reason that's interesting, number one, he's a very conservative justice. Number two, there's been a lot of news about his wife, Virginia uh, Ginny Thomas, uh, being in touch with the then White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, in, in sort of pursuing uh, the effort to overturn uh, President Biden's uh, legitimate win. So that connection is one reason why this has become such a big story. But to your question, the emails show that John Eastman, one of uh, President Trump's attorneys and other attorneys, just focusing on Thomas, in part also because he had uh, jurisdiction uh, over that area of the country, Georgia in, in particular, for this kind of uh, an appeal. Well, Wendy, I'm curious to hear from you what questions these latest emails raise about Jenny Thomas. As as Jeff just alluded to there, Thomas is a GOP activist. Uh, she was in touch with Trump's advisors about overturning the 2020 elections. We're talking about the, the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice who has opted not to recuse himself from cases surrounding the 2020 election. Right. And the rules there and the guidance are very, very murky. Um, You know, Ginny Thomas is her own person. Clarence Thomas is his own person. We all know couples that may or may not agree on things. I mean, I'm sure there was conversation about it. But she was very, very active in helping um, and encouraging Mark Meadows, the chief of staff to Trump at that time, to, you know, to work on getting the, uh, the election overturned. Every one of Clarence Thomas's rulings during that time favored Trump. Uh, whether or not that's collusion, if you will, between the couple, it's impossible to say. But Jeff, it seems like it speaks to this larger issue of transparency in the court. Um, because there aren't rules that require justices to recuse themselves themselves from cases. We did see um, when uh, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson was going through her confirmation hearing, she agreed to recuse herself from certain cases where there could be the appearance of a conflict of interest. But it, it seems it's not playing out consistently across the court. What's your read? Well, I think I think your description of that is spot on, and I think it's going to lead to uh, more criticism of the court as um, the court in general struggles with questions about its um, legitimacy is not is too strong of a word, but certainly about whether or not it's in line in any way with uh, public opinion and, and representative of the rest of the country. And that's something that has played out in, <coughs> pardon me, in some of these decisions that it has made. Um, but the question about the rules and what rules apply to the top justices, the top judges uh, of 
the of the Supreme Court and and of our judicial system uh, is is getting more and more notice. Well, also related to the 2020 election, this week the Supreme Court ruled that Republican South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham must testify in a grand jury election probe in Georgia. Uh, Wendy, briefly remind us why Senator Graham was subpoenaed for questioning. Um, He was subpoenaed for questioning because he apparently called the Georgia Secretary of State on on Trump's behalf or, or or in or in support of Donald Trump um, to push him to look for allegations of voting irregularities. He now says that his job as Senate Judiciary, uh, his job on the Senate Judiciary Committee means that he was acting in his official capacity and doesn't have to answer questions except that the Senate Judiciary Committee has nothing to do with a state-run election in Georgia, and um, the Supreme Court saw through that. Well, on Tuesday, Chief Justice John Roberts issued an order to temporarily bar the Treasury Department from handing over former President Trump's tax returns to a House committee. Jeff, how long has the House committee been trying to get these tax returns? Oh, oh for a while. <laughs> and I think they'd really like to get their hands on it before the end of this year. Uh, because the the control of that committee and control of the the House is at stake in Tuesday's elections. So uh, the the Chief Justice in the ruling that you just mentioned um, asked for follow up by November 10th. So there will be a response by then, uh, presumably. But this is the, the, the former president has argued that uh, they have that the committee has no right uh, to receive these these taxes. In general, to kind of paint a broader picture, it's important to remind listeners that President Trump is an outlier in terms of uh, recent presidents and presidential candidates for not having released his tax returns. And there are a lot of questions about um, what those tax returns would show about his business and what he has been truthful or perhaps not truthful about. The reason the uh, committee has requested them is to study whether or how the IRS is dealing with former president's tax returns, and that was their justification for requesting them. Now, this week, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates again. Today, the FOMC raised our policy interest rate by 75 basis points, and we continue to anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate. We are moving our policy stance purposefully to a level that will be sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2%. Wendy, what does this mean for consumers? Well, this means that buying things on credit will be, like a house, will become harder and harder. Um, 75 basis points, uh, for those who uh, don't follow this that closely, is three quarters of one percentage point. Um, that is the uh, the rate that that banks will get and that will push that on to consumers. Um, And this is partly because of the job market. And we saw these numbers this morning that um, while unemployment ticked up uh, one-tenth of a percentage point, there were still many more jobs. uh, There was much more robust hiring than they expected. That means people will have money. That means people will spend money. And that puts pressure on uh, the Fed to continue to raise interest rates to try to get a hold of inflation. Well, just to mention that latest jobs report, it shows employers added 261,000 jobs last month, slightly less than in September. But the unemployment rate also rose to 3.7%. Jeff, how did markets respond to this latest interest rate? hike? Well, they started off um, sort of positive in, uh, I think, responding to Fed Chair uh, Powell's remarks about perhaps uh, tempering the next rise of interest rates. But then, um, I should should rephrase that, responding to the, the statement that was first released by the Fed. But then when Chairman Powell spoke 
later in the day and talked about uh, the Fed not knowing uh, at what point they would they would be able to to stop um, or at what or at what point how high interest rates would need to go that uh, that was not received well by the markets and and stock markets ended up closing down sharply. Well, mortgage rates are, as you said, Wendy, closely tied to the Fed's interest rate moves. And after three straight weeks of increases, the average for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage hit a 20-year high of over 7% last week. This Thursday, the average dropped to 6.95%. How important is the volatility of, of mortgage rates right now specifically? It's extremely important. It is the one um, biggest asset that most Americans have, and most of us don't have huge stock holdings or things like that. And so our house is the biggest thing we own. And um, for I feel terrible for people who got talked into adjustable rate mortgages, whose mortgage is going up and down. Uh, people who might need to sell their house to move to one of these new jobs are going to have to buy it at a much higher interest rate. And that's going to have a, a terrible impact on the economy going into next year. Jeff, your thoughts? It, it's, I mean, Wendy's exactly right. Interest rates on houses will impact, has an impact on, on demand. And that's something that even the White House addressed this week. The White House is usually pretty careful about commenting on the Fed, but uh, Karine Jean-Pierre uh, made a point of saying that these higher mortgage rates will, will reduce demand for housing, and that's part of the Fed's overall strategy to bring inflation down. But it's, it's painful for consumers who are wanting to sell or wanting to buy, um, but it is part of a broader... Uh, effort to tamp down on inflation and and the impact that that is having on on this country and the globe. Well, yeah, and, and Jeff, I wanted you to to just contextualize this a little bit more for us because again, this is not just limited to the U.S. This is something we're seeing globally. Absolutely, and I think that's politically, Jen, a message that is it has been difficult for the White House and for the president to get across because. Americans don't care necessarily when they go to the grocery store or they go to the gas station that others around the world are facing the same type of of pain. But there are factors that are beyond control of any president, of any White House, that are impacting those prices. And they are having, I mean, the the war in Ukraine is one of them, the global supply chains and uh, the aftermath of the pandemic is another. We're seeing really, really high inflation in in Europe and, and other um, sectors of the world, and that that's what we're seeing and experiencing in the United States as well. But to bring it all back to politics, in addition to just the economic uh, factors that we are all dealing with, that is tricky for the person who's in power. And that will likely play itself out on Tuesday. Well, I want to quickly end on this tweet from Kokomo Kid, who says, I don't understand the obsession with interest rates being high. When I had a mortgage in 1981, they were twice what they are now. And we should note interest rates hit their highest point in modern history in 1981 at 16.6%. And just a quick sentence or two, Wendy, your thoughts? Well, yes, that's true. It still doesn't change the pain that people are feeling now who didn't have those then. But he's absolutely right. The highest were in the early 80s. That's Wendy Benjaminson. She's a deputy managing editor for U.S. government and Bloomberg News. Also joined by Jeff Mason, Reuters White House correspondent. Wendy, Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A.
We're rounding up the week's biggest headlines from around the world. Joining us, Jen Williams. She's a deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Jen, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Also with us, the editor of Foreign Affairs, Daniel kurtz Phelan. He's also the author of The China Mission, George Marshall's Unfinished War, 1945 to 1947. Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks so much. Great to be back. And Jane Ferguson. Jane is a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and a contributor to The New Yorker. Her latest reporting trip took her to various parts of Brazil ahead of the country's recent election. Jane, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Well, on Wednesday, the Ethiopian government and Tigrayan forces agreed to end a two-year conflict at peace talks that were held in South Africa. Today is the beginning of a new dawn for Ethiopia, for the Horn of Africa, and indeed for Africa as a whole. That was the former Nigerian president and African Union special envoy, Alusegan Abasanjo, who mediated the talks. Both sides have agreed to a permanent cessation of hostilities in a conflict that's believed to have killed hundreds of thousands and displaced millions on both sides. Jin, what can you tell us about this peace deal between the Ethiopian government and Tigrayan forces? Sure. So... We, we don't know a ton about the details in terms of the implementation, but what we do know uh, are some basic facts. So the deal calls for the full disarmament of the Tigrayan forces. So this is the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, um, which has been battling against the uh, Ethiopian federal government led by Abiy Ahmed. So it's going to call for the, uh, within 30 days, the full disarmament of the TPLF. Um, senior commanders from both sides are supposed to meet within five days to figure out how that's actually going to happen. So that's when I say that the details on how the implementation is going to go are still a little sketchy. Um, the deal also paves the way for Ethiopian federal troops to enter Tigray's regional capital um, in a manner that's, quote, expeditious, smooth, peaceful, and coordinated. And it calls for federal security forces to take over all of the airports, highways, and federal facilities within the Tigray region. So in other words, it's a fairly decisive win for the Ethiopian federal government and for Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Um, The Ethiopian federal government did uh, make some concessions on its own side. Um, They promised to restore essential services to Tigray. Uh, Remember, the Tigray region the whole time has been cut off from electricity, water, telecommunications, banking, etc. But for all that we do know, there's still a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that the deal left out. Dan, before we get too much farther into the conversation, just remind us why this war started two years ago this week. That's right. So so this started on the, the, the day after the American presidential election, a, a moment when much of the world's attention was focused elsewhere. And this had come, of course, a year after Abiy Ahmed had won the Nobel Peace Prize. He was hailed as this peacemaker. But there was uh, uh, disarray within the Ethiopian political system. Tigray held an election in, in a regional election that the central government hadn't authorized. And that was seen as a threat to central government control. So Abiy Ahmed started what he said was going to be a, a quick and, and relatively painless military operation to bring Tigray back under federal government control. And instead, that, of course, led to this this terrible two-year war with really uh, appalling humanitarian consequences, 
um, lots of allegations of, of uh, terrible war crimes, especially by the Ethiopian forces and the Eritrean allies, which have also been involved. So it's had enormous consequences for, of course, the people of Tigray most of all, but also threats to regional stability, uh, threats of drought and other other humanitarian tolls within Ethiopia more broadly. So you, you got to a point where, I think on the Tigrayan side, there was just a basic fear of those consequences, those humanitarian consequences, getting to a point that it would really kind of threaten the destruction of the region and the population of the region. And so, as, as Jen said, this put the Ethiopian government in a very, very strong position going into these negotiations. There's, again, as Jen said, a lot that is unsettled and a lot that is unknown, but um, it, is, it is at least a positive step forward after two years that looked pretty bleak. Well, Jane, according to eyewitnesses and rights groups, there's been an information blackout in the Tigray region, but there have been atrocities during this conflict. What do we know so far? We know that all sides have been accused of uh, crimes against humanity and war crimes. And it's important to point out that, as, as Jen mentioned there, that you know, part of this deal is the you know, uh, reopening services to, to, to the area. It's important to remember that also highlights the fact that they were stopped in the first place. Some six million people live in the Tigray region. And a, a very clear tactic by the Ethiopian government was to prevent humanitarian aid, food, and services that are that are essential to human life from entering that area. That's a very clear violation uh, of the laws of war and, and humanitarian laws. Uh, we know that the, that uh, rape was used as a weapon of war, extrajudi- extrajudicial killings. In this agreement, there isn't yet any mention of any kind of justice or pathway to justice. Now, that, of course, is simply because everybody is trying to make it uh, make it possible for, for the ceasefire to really hold and to, to build on this. But there's no doubt that absolutely horrendous crimes have taken place and an information blackout by design. This is one of the, if not the, biggest wars in the world today on scale. And we know very little about it. We've seen very little footage. That's not simply an apathy by the world's media. Journalists were deliberately blocked from this war in a way that was so incredibly impactful and in many ways successful in a campaign by the Ethiopian government to make sure they couldn't go in there. And it's very clear that crimes were being permitted uh, across all, all, uh, all groups and unarmed groups within there. So, so we know that up to a million people may have died, whether or not that's directly from the fighting or as a fallout of the humanitarian crisis. Thousands of people starved to death, uh, civilians, in this war. So I think that in the coming weeks and months, as humanitarian corridors do reopen, we'll only now come to learn what the real death toll and the real suffering uh, has been like. Well, Jen, pull on that thread a bit. Why was this information blackout so effective? Well, I mean, it's essentially because the Ethiopian forces were able to uh, to knock it out, to be able to kind of uh, stop all people from going in and out, to blockade the area, um, to knock out telecommunications facilities. Um, you know, we didn't have Elon Musk dropping in Starlink uh, internet like we did in Ukraine. Um, it, it's a much different situation. I think, you know, Jane is absolutely right. This was a deliberate strategy to cut off the region on purpose to blockade not just journalists, but also humanitarian aid. Um, On the same day that the truce was announced, the uh, chief of the WHO, uh, Tedros Adnam Ghebreyesus, said it had been two months 
since the last humanitarian aid had even reached Tigray. So it was a really effective cutting off. And in that way, it, you know, was come to be known as somewhat of the, the forgotten war, right? Because in many, you know, for, for many other reasons, too, I think, in, you know, including, um, you know, let's just be, be straightforward, uh, you know, racism uh, and, you know, the kind of tendency to view wars in Africa as something that just happens versus a war in, in, in Europe. I think there was definitely some degree of that, to be fair, in the media. But as Jane said, a lot of it was also due to this information blackout. And so, you know, a lot of the information that we know actually came from refugees fleeing the region. And when they made it to areas like Sudan and other kind of neighboring countries where refugee organizations, including the Norwegian Refugee Council and others, were able to finally interview people and get these stories, that's how we know even at all what was going on inside. So I do think, as Jane said, the opening up is going to be really significant if telecommunications are restored. Uh, You know, again, though, there's still a lot that's left out here. We don't know even, you know, how much the TPLF is going to be able to sell this to their own people. There's no discussion of what kind of force is going to maybe replace the TPLF if they're supposed to disarm and, you know, lay down arms and and give up the fight. Well, who's, you know, going to protect the Tigrayan people who have been victims and also, you know, the TPLF has perpetrated also, but have been victims of war crimes, et cetera. So there's a lot we still don't know about, you know, justice, protection, et cetera. But I do think just the opening up itself, if it does happen, will have a tangible effect. Well, Jane, we initially learned Eritrean forces were in the region from eyewitness reports, but that's not something that's addressed in this peace deal. What have we heard from the Eritrean government? Nothing yet. The Eritreans are not signatories to this deal, as you've mentioned. And so there's no mechanism that we know of to enforce them actually leaving the area. It's one of the major sort of black or blank spaces left in this. And it's another reminder that this feels more like a ceasefire deal than a real comprehensive peace deal. I think the idea will be to build upon this, but there's no uh, known mechanism for the, for, to, to get the Eritreans to move Uh, out of the area. So that's going to be a whole other enormous challenge uh, diplomatically. And and, and also, of course, it reminds us that this is something of a ceasefire that could be incredibly fragile. You have, for, for as long as those troops are still there, and you have Ethiopian government troops moving into the area, you have a huge amount of, of armed people in incredibly close quarters. So that's going to be really the next challenge for anyone trying to negotiate here. Well, as one of the African Union mediators said, the devil will be in the implementation, and that's something both the United States and the UN noted this week via spokespeople. This is very much a welcome first step. Uh, which we hope uh, can start to bring some solace uh, to the millions of Ethiopian civilians that have really suffered uh, during this this conflict. Uh, Today we had an announcement. Uh, What we will have to see is follow-through. And the United States will be there. Uh, We will be there to continue working with the African Union. They will continue to lead this process. We're rounding up the biggest stories from around the globe with Jane Ferguson. She's a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and contributor to The New Yorker, Daniel Kurtzphalen, the editor of Foreign Affairs, and Jen Williams, the deputy editor at Foreign Policy. The humanitarian crisis in Tigray is more than Ukraine. Nowhere on earth six million people are sealed off. Nowhere from basic services, from their own money, from telecom, from food, from medicine. That's Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus speaking in August. He's head of the WHO. 
Dan, hundreds of thousands have been displaced from Tigray and the neighboring Afar and and Amhara regions. That's according to the United Nations. So we're talking about millions of people in dire need of food and medical care. Just how bad is the humanitarian situation? It, it's it's really staggering, and because of the information blackout that Jane was describing earlier, we haven't gotten the kind of vivid, distressing pictures that you would normally expect to see from this kind of crisis. So just to to go through a few of the the striking numbers, you know, United Nations has said that there are about 20 million people in need of aid. That's in part because of the war, but also because of a drought in eastern Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Um, there have been reports that have come out through various means through various means of, of extrajudicial killings and mass rape. Um, some of this has certainly amounted to war crimes and perhaps crimes against humanity. Uh, the Tigrayans have said that almost 90% of people in northern Tigray need food aid right now. Um, and something like a third of the region's children are suffering from malnutrition. So both the scale and the depth of, of what's going on is really, really striking. And because of, uh, in part because of the amount of attention that's focused on crises elsewhere, starting with Ukraine, but also because of the information blackout, the kinds of images and the, the effect that would have on global conversation just hasn't happened in this case. And that is very much a deliberate strategy on the part of the Ethiopian government. Jane, the fighting may be coming to an end in this conflict, but the wounds on both sides will remain for a long time. What kind of future do you see for this peace deal? Just keeping the peace deal as a ceasefire in place is going to be the first and foremost the biggest challenge, essentially keeping the war uh, over. Of course, this is meant to be a permanent ceasefire, but you know, there's never any guarantee of that. Of course, the rebels are supposed to be uh, disarmed, but uh, as Jen has said, you know, selling this uh, peace deal to commanders, local armed groups and civilians is, is going to be extremely tough. From a humanitarian perspective, that's another huge challenge looking forward. You know, the world has many people in need right now, whether you're looking at Yemen, Afghanistan, uh, across the Sahel, you know, there are, and of course, uh, the, the situation uh, in Ukraine. I mean, there, there's so much demand, uh, partly in, due to rising food prices for people uh, in need there. If you just hear from the WFP these days, they're literally not able to feed everybody that, that, that they need to get to. They've had to cut back on, uh, on aid to places like Afghanistan and Yemen as a result. So that's gonna be another huge challenge. Um, and, I, and I think, again, you know, we've brought up the issue of justice here and whether or not there'll be any accountability. That, that, that unfortunately, in all of these cases, comes last, uh, last to having to, of course, end wars permanently. But I, I just think it's worth very briefly noting that, that, that those, uh, those crimes, potential crimes against humanity and, and clear war crimes that have taken place, you know, they were not a byproduct of fighting. They were a strategic part of the fighting. And I just, I think this has huge impl- implications going forward, uh, you know, globally. And when it comes to conflict, if the, if the Ethiopian government has effectively uh, weaponized hunger, weaponized aid, weaponized, you know, access to services necessary for human uh, survival, and used it to push a rebel group to uh, effectively this ceasefire deal, I think that has long-range implications, not just in Ethiopia, but globally. Well, let's turn to another part of the globe. Russia over the weekend announced it was suspending its participation in the grain deal brokered by the UN. Moscow cited allegations of a Ukrainian drone attack against its Black Sea fleet. That move was condemned by President Biden. 
truly outrageous. It's going to increase starvation. There's no reason for them to do that. But they're always looking for some rationale to be able to say the reason they're doing something outrageous is because the West made them do it. There, there, there's no merit to what they're doing. The U.N. negotiated that deal, and that should be the end of it. Then on Thursday, Russia agreed to rejoin Ukraine's grain deal. That ended a standoff that threatened to fuel a global food crisis. But President Putin gave only conditional support for sticking by the deal. I have instructed the Defense Ministry to resume our participation in this work. However, Russia reserves the right to withdraw from these agreements if these guarantees are breached by Ukraine. In any case, even if Russia pulls out of this deal, we will, as we said earlier, be ready to supply the entire volume of grain that was supplied from Ukraine to the poorest countries, which is only 4%. Dan, explain some of the push and pull that's going on here. So this grain deal over the summer is probably the only good news story when it comes to diplomacy since the war in Ukraine started. It was after a period when the global food prices had really been rising, in part as a result of the war. Ukraine and Russia are both very important agricultural suppliers. And so after several months of rising food prices, this this deal brokered by the United Nations and Turkey over the summer uh, finally allowed some of Ukraine's grain shipments to be shipped through the Black Sea, through a, a demilitarized zone. And that had resulted in something like 10 million metric tons of of grain making it to the world and starting to put um, ease pressure a bit on food prices. Uh, Russia here is in part trying to remind the world that it does has, have leverage. It is at the moment when it is suffering on the battlefield. It is uh, reminding people that it does have ways to uh, not just affect Ukrainians, but also to affect countries around the world, some of which are, are really suffering from inflation and shortages of food and other uh, humanitarian pressures. There's another dimension to this, though, which is that Russia was also supposed to get some ability to export its own agricultural products as part of this deal. And that's been uh, happening much less than the Ukrainian exports, not because of restrictions so much as reticence on the part of uh, partners and insurance insurers and shippers to to deal with the Russians because of their reputational risk. So part of what Russia was trying to do here was to get a little more help with its own exports while reminding the world that it did have this leverage as the war goes forward. Jen, remind us what parts of the world rely on these grain shipments. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, everyone does because the global price of food, you know, it is a global market. So just like with oil, when the oil supply is impacted in one area, it's going to affect it everywhere. But in particular, a lot of places in Africa, um, a lot of just lower income countries that are, are um highly reliant on imports for food, don't make a lot of their own food in particular. So as usual, it is it is the poorest, it is the most vulnerable who are impacted by these kinds of decisions. Um, I think it's really important to note what, what Dan said, though, that you know, even though Russia kind of made it out to be like this was a reaction to, you know, this attack in Sevo- uh, on the, the Russian ships in Sevastopol, it is much more uh, having to do with this longer term dissatisfaction that they've had over this agreement. Um, reminder, the agreement is set to expire this month on November 19th. So um, it's actually really interesting. While we've been talking, Reuters actually just broke some news that uh, Russia is apparently trying to push the West to ease restrictions on Russia's state agricultural lender. So it's the the Russell Hals Bank. Probably did not pronounce that correctly. Just warning on that. Um, But they're basically, as Dan was saying, because Russia hasn't gotten what it wanted, 
It was essentially having its own grain to be able to be sent around the world as well and to get that money from that. It is now calling on the West as part of these talks to extend the deal past November 19th. So it's very much Russia trying to say, hey, we want to sell our grain too. And, you know, a lot of countries, a lot of partners shippers, et cetera, don't want to work with Russia because they're under sanction. So it looks like this is very much a negotiating tactic that we saw this week with Russia threatening to pull out and showing again, as Dan said, that they have leverage. But again, if this this doesn't go through, if they can't find some sort of agreement and the deal does end, we're going to see the world's most vulnerable people be continue to be impacted by this. Well, staying with Russia, the White House on Wednesday said it was certain that North Korea is covertly supplying Russia's war in Ukraine with a significant amount of artillery and that the shipments were being routed through countries in the Middle East and North Africa. White House National Security Council's spokesperson, John Kirby, was asked on CNN how the U.S. planned to respond. First of all, we're, we're monitoring to see if they actually get delivered. We think they're going to covertly funnel these through third-party nations to try to hide the fact that it's actually going to Russia for use in Ukraine. We don't believe, given what we know, that it's going to make a a huge change on the battlefield in terms of the ability of the Russians to turn things around for them in the east and in the south. And in that same interview, Kirby also elaborated on what was a driving concern in Washington, that Russia could go back on earlier guarantees not to use a tactical nuclear weapon. You know, he called up 300,000 reservists. He's conducted sham referenda to try to politically annex ground he can't hold militarily. And now he's reaching out to countries like North Korea for artillery shells and Iran for drones and maybe even surface-to-surface missiles. This is not the picture of a leader of a military who clearly believes he's doing well on the battlefield. And so all of that gives us a heightened level of concern. And we'll talk about North and South Korea more in a moment. But on Thursday, the Wall Street Journal reported that Ukraine nuclear power plant is now running on backup generators. Kiev says the facility controlled by Russians has 15 days worth of fuel to run generators. So, Jane, is the biggest risk now not the use of a nuclear weapon, but a nuclear meltdown at this plant in Zaporizhia? This has always been a major concern, not just because of trying to stabilize the plant, but also the possibility of the plant being used, uh, you know, by uh, by the Russians to, to, to be able to effectively blame the Ukrainians. We heard also again from the Russians this week this this uh, theory or, or their, their argument that they believe the Ukrainians are about to use a dirty bomb. So, so we certainly, this is certainly set against a backdrop of rhetoric whereby, you know, nuclear weapons uh, or, or, or there's the, the threat of any kind of nuclear fallout still being in the background. I think it's also worth pointing out this week, of course, that uh, that as this is all happening, we know that the United States has said, that the White House has said that U.S. intelligence picked up some uh, Russian commanders discussing the use of tactical weapons. So I actually think it's certainly not the case that uh, nuclear fallout from the power plant is necessarily a bigger threat or more likely than the use of potential nuclear tactical weapons uh, on the battlefield. We know now, at least this is what uh, what the, the White House is saying, that there have been discussions. Now, Putin wasn't in those discussions. These were senior commanders. And you know, nuclear weapons haven't been moved. Nothing within the arsenal would would seem to, with those those watching it, would seem to indicate that there's been any preparation to use 
uh, weapons. But again, the, the, the problem is that we see rhetoric rising. And we know, of course, that the Russians have very few options on the battlefield. So the, uh, the issue of tactical nuclear weapons being used is certainly not something anybody could, could write off. Jen, very briefly, as we, as we head into these colder winter months, what are you watching most closely uh, in this Russian-Ukraine conflict? Yeah, I'm very much watching closely the Russian attacks on Ukrainian uh, critical infrastructure. So we saw uh, early this week these big attacks on the energy and um, and water facilities in Ukraine, um, in Kiev. Something like 80 percent of people were without water and electricity. It seems like electricity and water have been restored so far, but there are continued rolling blackouts. And so as we go into the winter, when more and more people need to turn on the heat to just to survive, if Russia, and they likely will, if Russia continues to do these attacks, which to be clear, are war crimes if you're attacking civilian infrastructure, I think we're going to continue to see some really horrific developments uh, for Ukrainians as the it gets very, very cold and people don't have electricity to survive. Well, let's shift now to the Korean Peninsula, where a barrage of missiles have been soaring back and forth this week. On Wednesday, North Korea fired 23 missiles. By some estimates, that's the most missiles it's tested in a single day. On Thursday, North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile, which South Korea says failed mid-flight but triggered emergency warnings in Japan. Dan, this comes as the U.S. and South Korea are practicing their joint air drills. Explain a little bit more about the timeline of this escalation from the DPRK. So I, I think what we see here is what may be the kind of forgotten crisis of this year, a, a, a looming North Korean crisis. We've seen tensions growing between North and South Korea for several months since a new, more conservative and less conciliatory administration took over in South Korea in Seoul. And that has come with a growing number of military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea, with a rhetorical escalation by both, both North and South Korea. So as we've seen in the past week, uh, this latest round of, of regularly held military exercises between uh, the U.S. and South Korea, these are called the Vigilant Storm Drills, which involve uh, fighter jets and military aircraft and kind of joint missions. These are all, all training over several days. Uh, the North Koreans have been uh, going out of their way to remind the South Koreans, the United States, that they have growing capabilities. So they fired, as you said, 23 missiles, and that's the most they've ever fired in a day. They tested yesterday, um, once again, an intercontinental ballistic missile, which would you know, potentially threaten uh, U.S. installations or U.S. allies farther afield, not just South Korea. Uh, that test failed, but th- they've been increasing those capabilities over time. And this comes as well in the context of growing fears that the North Koreans will test a nuclear weapon again. Um, So you even had Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin saying yesterday, um, reminding the North Korean regime that a nuclear strike would be met with the destruction of the regime in in, in Pyongyang. So uh, we see this escalation here, um, even as there are other global crises that have uh, sucked up most of the attention and oxygen. I think in you know more normal times, this would be a kind of uh, uh, dominating headlines. It's the kind of um, you know escalation of the situation that uh, y- used to get a lot of attention, but with so much happening elsewhere, I think it's been a bit under the radar. Well, the U.S. and South Korea decided to extend their military drills in response to North Korea's missile launches. Jane, it, it's unclear how long the drills will go on for now, but wh- what do you see happening from here? 
It's very hard to see that. I mean, look, w once the drills do eventually end, you know, typically we have seen a reduction of the tension. But at the minute, you know, as Dan has said, this has been an unprecedented uptick in tension. So, I mean, but when you, but I think it's also worth asking ourselves, you know, what are Pyongyang's options? You know, they, 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 they've fired a record number of missiles, ballistic missiles uh, towards, uh, towards the south, but you know, beyond continuing to do that and rhetoric that we've heard, um, you know, the threats, it's, it's hard to see what, what options they really have moving forward. But certainly I think we're going to see a lot more angry words coming, coming from both sides. While Bibi is back, Israelis have gotten used to elections this week. They saw voters turn out for the fifth time in just four years. And the country's longest ever serving prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is set for another term in office. Jen, explain a little bit about what happened here. Yeah, so basically, the final results showed that Netanyahu's Likud party and the ultra-nationalist and religious partners that it has been running along with uh, captured a solid majority in the Knesset and Israeli, uh, the Israeli parliament. Um, we basically saw uh, the kind of, as we've seen, there is largely no Israeli left to even speak of these days in terms of actually showing, um, you know, any kind of political power. Um, we also have no centrist party that's likely going to be a part of this coalition. So Netanyahu's main governing partner is likely going to be the religious Zionism party. Um, now, this is a, a lot of people probably haven't heard of this party. It's actually, it's a far-right party. Um, it's actually an alliance of three different far-right factions representing hardline settlers, ultranationalists, and anti-LGBTQ religious activists. So basically, these smaller parties weren't able to get enough seats to really make a difference until Netanyahu actually helped nudge them and said, what if you got together, banded together, and created a party that could actually uh, win seats? So they all kind of got together, made this coalition, and now along with Netanyahu, they seem to be the ones who are going to be governing going forward. Um, it's really interesting to see what's going to happen. Um, you know, Netanyahu is still facing charges of corruption, fraud, etc. Um, a lot of the policies that these groups, that the, the far-right politicians campaigned on, uh, involved remaking the country's judiciary and rule of law, in part to potentially get BB out of legal trouble. So a lot of potential impacts. We're going to see a a BB ruling without a centrist party in his coalition, uh, basically no centrist check on how far right his policies might go. Well, let's hear from Benjamin Yahoo after that win. Today, we have won a huge vote of confidence. Should final results match those of exit polls, I will establish a national government that will take care of all Israel citizens, without an exception, all of them. Now, Dan, you could make the case that the story here isn't the political comeback of the former prime minister, but the rise in popularity of Itamar Ben-Gavir. Who is he and what impact could his party have in the months to come? So this is one of the, the far-right partners in Bibi's coalition that Jen was talking about. He um, is, is the head of something called the Jewish Power Party, which has generally been, you know, kind of on the fringe of the Israeli political system. And this is really the first time that it will be uh, uh, part of a governing coalition. Uh, ben Gvir is an extremist figure. He was considered such an extremist that he was not allowed to serve in the Israel Defense Forces. Um, he's, he's long been a, uh, looked up to. 
uh, America Han, an extremist rabbi. He reportedly had a picture of uh, Baruch Goldstein, uh, a radical settler, a terrorist who killed um, uh, a couple dozen of uh, Palestinians in a mosque shooting in the 1990s. So he has um, very, very uh, extreme views, extreme ties. He has pr- proposed things like um, giving Israeli soldiers uh, immunity when if they shoot Palestinians. He's proposed uh, deporting uh, Israelis who... Uh, uh, express views that he would view as uh, as terrorist views or or, or um, somehow threatening the security of Israel. So the fact that a, a, a figure like this will be part of a, go- a governing coalition is is really unprecedented and, and bodes um, uh, quite grimly for the prospect of, of peace talks and for improvements in relations between Israelis and Palestinians. Bibi in the past, and he's been a kind of commanding figure in Israeli politics for a quarter century when he was first elected prime minister, he's usually had a centrist in his governing coalition. And that has in some ways limited um, what he's able to do when it comes to some of these really key issues. But the fact that his governing partners are now these far-right figures um, will not just um, you know, give him freedom to do things that he might have been constrained uh, uh, against doing in the past, but also may really push him to uh, embrace more extreme measures when it comes to relations with the Palestinians. Um, there's, uh, of course, you know, complicated regional relationships and uh, Iranian nuclear threats. So this could really be um, a, a different kind of BB than we've seen in the past. Well, Axios reports that the Biden administration is, quote, unlikely to engage with the Jewish supremacist politician Edemir Ben-Gavir, end quote, if he's made a senior minister in a future Israeli government. Jen, what does this mean for the White House's ability to find a way to work with this new government? Right. Well, because Netanyahu is still going to be at the head, I think, you know, Biden and Netanyahu have a very long uh, relationship, you know, back when Biden was vice president. They know each other very well. Um, You know, Biden even once uh, apparently wrote a note to Bibi saying, you know, I disagree with everything that you say, but God, I love you. Um, so they do have a relationship. Now, when it comes to Ben Gvir, that's, uh, that's a completely different story. Um, it also doesn't uh, particularly bode well for uh, the two-state solution. Uh, I mean, it, we have long talked about the two-state solution being dead anyway, but there is essentially zero support among the incoming government for that. So, And that is U.S. policy, right, is to support the two-state solution. So without that, there's really no prospect for any kind of peace, even talks, even anything like that. Um, I do think, you know, the White House will continue to have to work with Netanyahu's government in many ways. There are a lot of shared interests. Uh, In particular, there's a lot of effort by uh, Ukraine and the U.S. to get Israel to do more to help Ukraine in the war against Russia. There are a lot of interests that basically can't be ignored. However, I do think the White House, the Biden administration, is going to have to be really careful walking a fine line between working with Bibi and his government and really, you know, showing that it's it's kind of hands off with the more extremist Jewish supremacist ultranationalist pieces of his government. Well, let's move on to this week's news out of Brazil, where results from last Sunday's runoff election were revealed. By a slim margin, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva won the presidency. And after two days of silence, former President Jair Bolsonaro finally made a statement about the vote on Tuesday. A Bolsonaro's statement was less than two minutes in length, and he didn't concede or even name the winner of the election, referred to it widely as Lula. Jane, what do you make of how he's handled this loss? 
In the big picture, it has been more peaceful than many people feared it would be. Obviously, it was incredibly tense at the end. You know, Bolsonaro was silent for almost two days. And, you know, this is set against a backdrop of him having said for months, for over a year, well before anybody went to the polls, that the election results would be rigged. He had, un he had worked hard through his own, uh, his own social media campaigns and the way he had very much so built a direct link to his followers. He'd worked hard and undermining the results long before they ever ever came in. So there was a huge amount of anticipation that Bolsonaro would reject the results, especially if they came in as tight as they did. And this was an incredibly close race. Bolsonaro very nearly won this election. So whenever he sat in silence, there was a real sense that this could be him potentially sizing up his options here. Would he throw out the, 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 the results? Would he sort of try to muddy the waters by launching an investigation? And so he was basically hauled up in uh, the presidential uh, palace for a couple of days and the press were um, invited to come, told he would, he would speak. They waited for several hours. It was quite tense. And as you say, when he came down, he didn't actually concede. It was as close as Brazil was going to get to a concession. He, uh, he, so he sort of grumbled about the way the, the, the election had taken place and then he went on to say, though, that they would not be violent. And that was really what everybody was waiting to hear. Would Bolsonaro incite his supporters to violence or to major, major disruption? Like we saw some of it with some of the truckers blocking the roads across the country um, in, uh, after he had, uh, he had announced this. And then he stepped away from the podium and very quickly left. And his chief of staff, who had been standing next to him, then, then leaned into the microphone and said that they would, in fact, start procedures to hand over power to Lula. And then he left very quickly after that. So I think everyone took from that that was as clear as they were going to get that this was a concession. Since then, Bolsonaro has actually released a video statement to his supporters calling for people to act peacefully and for there to be no violence. You spent several weeks during this election traveling around Brazil. What are your big takeaways from this election and how people are reacting to Lula's win? It's very important to remember just how tight this was and that Brazil really is divided. You know, we talked to uh, f cattle farmers in the province of Mato Grosso, which is sort of the, just the south of uh, the Amazon rainforest there. His support is huge. And it's also worth pointing out that, you know, this election really brought to a head some of the massive uh, social changes in Brazil as well. I mean, you know, the, 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 we saw the rise of the evangelical party really come into its own. Evangelical supporters of Bolsonaro um, are a huge part of his base. Another important, very, very important topic that was that was brought up in this in this election that really came to to a head was the Amazon rainforest itself, as well as indigenous rights and the rights of the people who, who live there. But effectively, environmentalists had put Lula under a huge amount of pressure to say that he would guarantee you know, no more uh, expansion, no more uh, land grabs by uh, those who want to develop in, in the, the forest. So he's made a lot of promises. And there's a huge amount of expectation. I mean, talking to Lula supporters on the ground in Sao Paulo or within the Amazon in states like Bahia and, and in Pará, there was just such absolute euphoria when he won. But it's hard not to see that that people's expectations could be quite high now. People expect lower food prices, lower fuel prices, greater human rights, and a stop to, uh, to the deforestation in the forest. That's going to be 
very hard to deliver on across the board. We've got to remember that Brazilian politics is not like American politics, even though the rhetoric sounds like it. But Congress, he's going to have to deal with Congress, which will be a much bigger, much more diverse group of parties he's going to have to deal with and, and to do deals with. So that will temper some of his rhetoric. We're talking with Jane Ferguson, correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and contributor to The New Yorker, Daniel kurtz Phelan, the editor of Foreign Affairs, and Jen Williams, the deputy editor at Foreign Policy. An update from Pakistan. On Thursday, a gunman opened fire on a campaign truck carrying the country's former prime minister, Imran Khan. He was wounded slightly. One of his supporters was killed. To date, no group has claimed responsibility for the shooting. But the attack raises fresh new concerns about political instability. Since his ouster and a no-confidence vote in parliament in April, Khan has mobilized mass rallies across the country. And finally, let's move to China, where visitors at Shanghai Disney were locked in the park after authorities learned one guest had recently tested positive. Dan, visitors were blocked from leaving or entering the park, the park until all tested negative. What's happened since that lockdown? So, so this is the kind of latest kind of surreal episode in the saga of China's uh, zero COVID policy. This, to remind listeners, this has been... Um, uh, kind of the most extreme approach in the world to controlling uh, to controlling COVID, where even you know one one positive test leads to lockdown and mass testing. This has been something that Xi Jinping has made really central to uh, his case for a, a, a third term in power, which was um, uh, a big part of the Party Congress in, in in China over the last couple of weeks. And people have kind of expected him to start. Uh, shifting away from zero COVID. It's made it incredibly hard to open up the economy. The costs of implementing it um, are very high. And there are a lot of reasons to think that uh, lots of Chinese people find this incredibly restrictive policy and these incidents like the one at Shanghai Disney this week um, to be uh, a source of increasing dissatisfaction. So people are looking to um, signs that Xi Jinping and the Chinese government might shift, might start shifting away from zero COVID. But the signals, I think, to some some observers' surprise uh, at the Party Congress and since haven't been as clear as people would like. And the Shanghai Disney incident was just again, you know, the kind of latest uh, uh, surreal uh, manifestation of that policy that that we've seen over the past several months. Well, in the final minute or so that we have left, I would love to hear from each of you a story you're watching or a story you think hasn't gotten enough attention this week. Jen, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I'm continuing to watch Iran and the protests that are going on there. I mean, you know, we have seen sporadic protests um, over the years happen in Iran. We have seen nothing like this kind of sustained level of protest. Um, Now we're seeing, you know, people coming out to mourn the deaths of people who have been killed in previous protests in previous weeks. So it's just continuing. We're seeing um, over the weekend the the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, was warning that, you know, this was the last straw, that they were going to start cracking down. We've heard from the regime um, that they're going to start potentially having mass trials and executing people. So keeping a close eye on that. Jane, what about you? Iran as well. I just cannot look away. And, and, and part of that is because I'm still very much so involved in covering Afghanistan and what the women in Afghanistan have been doing. And it's, it's, it's very hard not to see some parallels. It's obviously very, very, very different political contexts. But to see young women 
protesting in the street despite massive, massive risk. I, I just and, and the two countries side by side with a lot of cultural overlap. I think it's absolutely uh, inspiring and frightening to watch. Um, very much so, keeping a close eye on Afghan women who refuse to stop the pressure on on their on their uh, the Taliban regime. Dan, and just a sentence or two. Uh, I would just remind people that we have a UN climate change conference starting in Egypt on Sunday, and so much of what we've talked about over the course of this year uh, is both has exacerbated climate change and, and and set us back in the fight, and also in some ways been exacerbated by climate change. So this is kind of the the threat and challenge that looms over so much of what we talk about in these conversations. That's Daniel Kurtz Phelan, editor of Foreign Affairs, also with us today. Jane Ferguson, correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and contributor to The New Yorker. And Jen Williams, deputy editor at Foreign Policy. Thanks to you all. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.